perhaps no era in history, outside the actual birth of Christ, is more associated with the Christmas season than the Victorian era. Most of our Christmas traditions seem to originate there. Things like the Christmas tree, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and much more. So obviously, as we head into the Christmas season, it makes sense to look at the other thing that the Victorians are best known for. Death. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So I owe everybody an apology. I didn't release an episode last week. I didn't warn anybody. I didn't update anybody. I haven't been posting on social media. All around failure. Um, I, I get the feeling that I'm probably not alone. Uh, if you are a student, you're weathering the end of the semester. Uh, if you are just a normal human being, you're weathering the holiday season. And I'm sure we're all exhausted. Um, in my world, small update worth mentioning. So I have changed jobs. So over the past month, month and a half, really two months, I've been going through multiple rounds of interviews and background checks and all of that joyful stuff. Very exciting. I am making the switch from the consulting private corporate world over to the government side of things. I'm going to be doing some things that are slightly different than what I did. I'm still technically an architectural historian, but I am going to be working in urban planning now. But I started last Thursday, so last Friday when I should have released an episode was my second day on the job, and I just didn't have the energy. So I'm sorry. Also, this topic that I'm going to be covering this week is not particularly difficult to cover. It's just there was a lot to cover, and I was a little uncertain how to organize it. I had all the research done last week. I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with it because I was going off the rails in a couple of different senses. So I'm going to be giving a broad kind of overview of certain things. I'm going to be talking about some cultural phenomenons that are separate, strictly speaking, from cemeteries. And then I'm going to actually talk about cemeteries themselves. And in this case, I'm actually going to be talking about all of them in England. Now, if you are a longtime listener, you know that this show tends to focus on American pop on American podcasts. Well, of course, it focuses on American podcasts. It is an American podcast. I'm tired. I told you. No, <laughs> not just on cemetery podcasts, but it focuses on American cemeteries and American cemetery culture. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, it just helps narrow the scope. Secondly, I think it's important because so much globally of modern cemetery design and culture is a very American-centric idea. And that's not to say that there aren't dozens of fascinating burial and death cultures around the world that I would love to explore. It's just there's only enough hours in the day. So I'm going outside to England mainly because there is far more written about British, Victorian, death history than there is American. That's not to say that it doesn't transfer over into the American life. 
Um, if you listened last year to the podcast that I did with Victoria Lemos over at Archive Atlanta on body snatching, I read a lot from a book called The Sacred Remains, which is written by a gentleman named Gary Latterman, who's actually a professor right here in Atlanta. And that particular book goes deeply into the changing American attitudes towards death between 1799, when George Washington dies, Happy Death Day, 222 years ago, just this week, and the late 1880s, and how things changed and how different cultural phenomenons influenced that. There is a ton that we can talk about with American Victorian history, too. However, in general culture, in things that you read, in television shows, in all of these different places, odds are you have seen far more about the British and their mourning traditions, their overall history. And one of the things I want to talk about is the fact that in many ways, we like to think that we are influenced by European culture, but I'm going to argue today that the Europeans are also influenced by us. So without further ado, I'm going to give you a little general history of the Victorian era, the relationship with death, what it encompasses, some of the cultural practices around it, and then lastly, I'm going to go into the core of cemetery history in the Victorian era, which is the Magnificent Seven in London. So... To start off with, when we talk about the Victorian era, we are, of course, talking about the reign of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is born June 20th, or excuse me, the reign of Queen Victoria, who is um, the longest serving monarch until she was surpassed by Elizabeth I. Her reign begins on June 20th, 1837, when she is 18 years old, and it ends with her death on January 22nd, 1901, at the age of 81. She reigns for 63 years and seven months. And as I said, it takes quite a bit of time for somebody to surpass her. And I believe that Queen Victoria was only surpassed by Queen Elizabeth like five or six years ago. It wasn't even that long ago. Her reign is remarkable for a couple of different reasons. First of all, this is the height of the British Empire. You know, the long-standing tradition that the sun never sets on the British Empire comes from the just massive expansion that happens during Victorian's era, Victoria's era. She is also the last, technically speaking, of the Hanover dynasty. Her children, who will rule after her, will be the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, which will be a very short-lived family, even though the modern royal family is still part of the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. They don't use that name. They changed their name and anglicized it to Windsor, during World War One, because they didn't want anybody to remember that Queen Victoria and the Kaiser were in fact first cousins and were rather chummy. It's very inconvenient when you're trying to wage war against each other. So Victoria is the last of the Hanovers. If you don't remember your English history, the Hanovers were the Germans who came in basically took over from the historically well, I guess it depends on how far back you want to go, but the historically English line, um, many would argue French line, that had ruled England, 
they come in, there's a lot of unrest, but they then successfully rule for most of the 17 and 1800s. So Victoria becomes queen at a very young age, and she does this because both of her father's brothers predecease her. It's really, in many ways, an accident that she becomes queen very much the same way that a Queen Elizabeth will when it comes to be her time. Um, I think you could argue that the ladies that end up on the throne and end up ruling the longest often are not the ones who are expected to rule. So, Queen Victoria herself has nine children. She has these with her consort, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. Now, Saxe-Coburg and Gotha are two of these German city-states. Now, again, if you remember your European history, there's not going to be a unified Germany until much later in the 19th century. At this point, there are these little principalities that exist. So he is royal in his own right, but he agrees to take a back seat to his wife, who will be the monarch. She marries him in 1840. She has been less queen for less than three years at this point. She is just 20 years old. And then, obviously, they get down to business. Because in the next 21 years, she produces nine children. And if you have seen Albert's picture... Let's just say he must have had a personality. Prince Albert is an interesting man in and of himself, um, a huge patron of both the arts and sciences. He is very interested in the mechanization and the modernization of England. He is, in fact, quite progressive. At home, they spoke German. He brings many of his German traditions the one that is most popular and probably completely incorrect is that he brings the tradition of using a Christmas tree to England, and this is why the idea of a Christmas tree is popularized during the Victorian era. Um, most of his biographers think this is absolute nonsense, but it's almost Christmas, so why not be festive? In addition to this, he brings a lot of modernizing things in terms of just trying to expand not just what England has, but what England knows in terms of social progress, in terms of cleaning things up, better sewage and sanitation measures, modernizing London, these type of things. He is the one, if you remember the Crystal Palace and this first exhibition, which is held in London, he is the one that is really the driving force behind this in the early 1850s, which this is sort of a proto-World's Fair that brings inventors and all of these marvels to London and really puts them on the map as innovators. He is also one of her most trusted advisors when it comes to political expansion and decision-making. Prince Albert... Um, as he gets older, their older children, um, particularly their eldest son, who will eventually go on to rule after Victoria, gives them a lot of trouble. And so he's troubled by a number of health issues throughout his life. Um, spends a lot of time at Balmoral, which if you're familiar with Balmoral, the palatial estate in Scotland that is still favored by the Queen today. Uh, he spends a lot of time back and forth between there. His son's affair with an Irish actress is a major concern to him. 
all of these things take a toll on his health. He has chronic pain, even though he's only in his late 30s. And there's a lot of illness. So much so that in 1861, on December 14th, again, just had an anniversary this week, ironically, Prince Albert and George Washington died on the same day. At 10.50 in the evening, he dies at the age of 42. The official cause of death is listed as typhoid fever. Now, if you read his biographies, if you read any of the accounts of his death, there is a lot of debate about whether or not he actually dies of typhoid fever. Being that it is in fact 1861, we don't really know. He was obviously attended by the court physician and all of that jazz, but there's just not sufficient data to give a really accurate cause of death. Now, this is one of the most devastating and really life-changing events for Victoria. After this, she becomes colloquially known as the Widow of Windsor. She will go into the deepest mourning for Albert. You can see numerous photographs of her. Almost all of them are going to be in black. She remains in mourning for her husband for the remainder of her life. Now, this is also a double whammy because not long before, in March of 1861, Victoria's mother had also died. Victoria's mother, if you have read anything about her, she was a powerhouse in and of herself. Quite a strong-willed lady and definitely a very strong influence on Victoria, particularly when she was younger and first had taken the throne. Now, following Albert's death, uh, he is temporarily interred in St. George's Chapel at Windsor while she constructs what she considers to be a fitting mausoleum for him. Now, I have talked in the past about the Frogmore Mausoleum, so I'm not going to go too in-depth. One of the reasons for the delay was that she was still building the mausoleum for her mother, which is also at Frogmore. So Frogmore is on the massive estate at Windsor Castle. Eventually, he will be buried in a sarcophagus there. Uh, I believe it's 11 or 12 years after his death, sometime in the 1870s. And then Victoria will be laid beside him when she eventually dies at the age of 81 in 1901. Now, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. The way that Victoria mourns Albert will be the precedent that is set for all. One of the things that I think even if you know very little about the Victorians, they have this reputation for being very stiff and upright and real rule followers who are real sticklers about a lot of things. And I think one of the reasons that this is such a well-known stereotype about the Victorians has to do with Victoria and Albert, has to do with this moray following the death, particularly of a spouse. Albert is memorialized in every way possible. Even today, if you go the Royal Albert Hall, the Victorian Albert Museum, there is not a tree stump that was not named in his honor, which apparently, from what I have read about Albert, he really would not have enjoyed. He was a rather humble man in and of himself. 
it's interesting because Charles Dickens himself said that he sought <laughs> he sought to go to an inaccessible cave to escape the sheer number of monuments that had been made to Albert in a letter to John Leach, who was a caricaturist at Punch magazine. But the thing you have to understand is that when the queen sets a precedent, everyone is expected to follow it. Now, this meant that there were very strict rules regarding mourning. Mourning is the formal mourning of a spouse. So the first step is, is that there is a withdrawal from society immediately following this event. Now, this involves the entire family, including servants. This is probably a good time to remind you that the Victorian era is really remarkable in a number of circumstances. First of all, we have a massive shift culturally, forced by the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, which happens in the late 18th, early 19th century, causes a mass exodus to cities. So, London, England, in the first 50 years of the 19th century, between 1800 and 1850, almost doubles its population. So around the turn of that century, it has a population of about a million. By 1850, it has risen to 2.3 million because of the influx of workers who are coming to work in factories. This means massive growth, which is the reason that there were all of those social problems, things like, you know, rotten sewage, you know, a push for mechanization, paving of roads, improvement of social services, all of these things are in high demand just because of the sheer growth of the city. There is also a shift now that there is a larger working class for upward mobility. And one of the ways that you were able to show your upward mobility during the Victorian era was through these outward displays. And these outward displays were your house, the type of carriage that you drove, the way that you dressed, every single aspect of it. I think of it very much like the film American Psycho, where there is the concern about having the right business card. It's all of those things. It's having the right shoes, the right hat, the right horse, belonging to the right club. There's a very keeping up with the Joneses type about it. And a lot of this stuff probably seems very silly in the modern day. But of course, we have our own versions of it. No place was this more apparent than mourning. Mourning was big business because as much as the population was growing and as, as much as the world was modernizing, there was still a very, very high mortality rate. And in fact, people moving to the city, poor sanitation, poor safety measures, the risk of being killed in an industrial accident, increased traffic in the streets, meaning you could get crushed by a carriage, new types of technologies like railroads, which could cause death, as well as the general, oh, lots of people living together means lots of sewage and lots of disease, all meant that mortality was extremely high. This meant a couple of things. First of all, burial practices needed to change. We will talk about that later. Secondly, though, there needed to be a way to not only deal with bodies, but it offered an opportunity to make a public statement about yourself through the death of a loved one. So 
Obviously, the person that this is going to affect most is a spouse. Now, by spouse, I'm mainly talking about wives. That is not to say that men were not affected, but as with all the good things, the men are affected less. If you were the spouse of the deceased, you were expected to mourn for a full two years at minimum following their death. As I said, many spouses mourned longer than that. Victoria mourned for the rest of her life. And I think if it was up to her, all women would do the same. So for a year and a day following the death, and I'm going to go with a husband here because it's just a little bit easier. So for a year and a day following the death of your husband, a woman was expected to be in full mourning. Full mourning meant that you essentially were separate from the world. The only people that you could see were your family. You were allowed to go to church and to certain family gatherings. Things like weddings and christenings were permitted, but there were very specific social rules that you had to follow. Many of these had to do with the way that you dressed. Widows in their first year could not wear jewelry. They were expected to wear clothing trimmed with crepe. Crepe was a very dull, scratchy material didn't have any shine to it, not fashionable at all. After six months, you could go into what was sometimes called black mourning, which meant that you or you could shift over to wearing other black clothing that was made of different materials that had a sheen to it. At this point, you are also permitted to start wearing certain types of jewelry, one of the most popular being hair jewelry. Yes, you heard that correctly. And if you are in any way familiar with the Victorian era, I am sure that you have seen this. This is hair that is in fact made from the hair of the deceased. Most often it's either worn in a locket or it's woven into a brooch. Some of them are quite lovely, still very creepy. This is thought to derive directly from Victoria, who supposedly kept a lock of Albert's hair in a locket around her neck. The other most popular item was jet. Now, jet is essentially petrified wood. It takes on this glassy, shiny black appearance. And jet occurs naturally when petrified wood is petrified through pressure and heat and water. Certain types of trees produce better jet. Um, so you have heavy deposits in places where these particular trees grow. Um, in England, the majority of jet comes from a place in northeastern England called Whitby. I have been to Whitby. It is an enchanting little town. And I actually do have a piece of jet morning jewelry that I purchased there. Mine is a little rose. Um, and you can see this is, it's very fine and delicate. It almost looks like glass. So much so, and it was in such demand and could be so pricey that many people had fake jet made out of glass. The jet that was in Whitby was particularly prized because it was hard and you were able to do a lot with it. It dates back to the Jurassic period and it's interesting. Hard jet is petrified in salt water. So I think I told you that Whitby is on the coast and so that's the reason there was this abundance. Had both the right trees, the right geological conditions and salt water. Softer jet is made in freshwater conditions. And when jet is harvested, it can be cut and polished. 
Now, jet was popular long before the Victorians, as far back as the Neolithic and Bronze Age. Um, It becomes popular again with the Romans, who of course had a lot of settlements in Northern England, but the jet in Whitby is very, very popular. And the entire town is based around it. And of course, it is this fashionable and appropriate morning color of black. Um, You can see very, very elaborate sets of beads made out of jet. Um, Cameos are very popular. You see all kinds of different stuff made out of jet. And like I said, Whippy is just an enchanting little town, which again gains fame because it is the town and location that is featured in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So it is just at the seat of every good goth girl's heart. So, Whippy jet, hair jewelry, you are allowed certain things. And then eventually you go into full half mourning after 18 months. And... When you are in half mourning, you are allowed to wear other colors. They are still subdued, so things like purple, white, and gray. There are certain exceptions, so widows who go to weddings are, I believe, allowed to wear white, and they can wear pearls um, out of respect. Um, Keep in mind, Victoria is also the one that popularizes brides wearing white, so this is sort of a new thing. But spouses go through a very strict and stringent, and often, if they had not did not have a need to remarry, they would continue to wear half mourning for even longer than the the last six months of their two-month mourning period. Men, of course, got to wear a black armband. Yes, you heard that correctly. Now, for other than a spouse, there were also prescribed mourning periods. So, it depends on how you are related. Both your parent and your child you would have a 12-month mourning period, six months of full mourning, three months of that black mourning, and then three months of half mourning. For a sibling, six months, three of full mourning, three of just the regular black mourning. You didn't have to go through half mourning. The same for a grandparent. An aunt and uncle, three months of just regular mourning, no full mourning. First cousin, six weeks of mourning, no full mourning. And for an in-law, six weeks in black. And as a wife, you were expected to observe all mourning for your husband's family. And often, if a man remarried, his second wife, even though his first wife was dead, she would have to observe mourning for his previous in-laws. So if his first wife's mother died, she went into mourning. Now, and I may have told this story on the podcast before, forgive me, I've been doing this for more than two years now, so I can't remember which stories I've told and which I haven't. I will never forget my first teaching job. And now that I start to tell the story, I'm pretty sure I've told it before, but it's worth telling. I worked with a woman named Rosemary, and she was probably in her late 40s, early 50s. She was the eighth grade social studies teacher. Delightful, tiny little round Portuguese lady. And I will never forget one day, she said, oh, I'm so excited to wear colors next week. And I guess I had never noticed, or I hadn't really thought about it, she usually almost always wore black. And as I said, she was, she was a little plump. 
she was she was a bigger lady so I guess I assumed she wore it because she felt it was more flattering she, she thought it made her look thinner I don't really know I never really thought about it I was 20 years old and my first teaching job I had no idea and I said to her, I said, well, what do you mean you can wear colors? And she goes, oh, well, next week is the anniversary of my mother-in-law's death. And then she revealed that she had been in mourning for a year where she had only worn black because her mother-in-law died. This was in 2008. So culturally, this does still exist. The idea of mourning still exists in different cultural communities who still practice these type of things, it does still exist. We tend to think of these as being very silly and archaic, but it 100% does still exist. Worthwhile story to tell. Anyways, she went on to wear colors, and she was very happy for it. Now, all of this, as you can imagine, was very expensive. So as mourning became more ingrained in Victorian society, a couple of things happened. First of all, you get these massive funeral warehouses that open up. Imagine them being like the Sam's Club of funerals. Everything that you need to observe mourning. So you would know that someone was in mourning because they would have crepe draped over their door and they would have a special drapery over the windows. They would cover the clocks. They would, if they had to respond to something, have special note paper. And you could tell which stage of mourning they were in based on how thick the black line was around the note paper. Black gloves, black trimmed handkerchiefs, full women's wardrobes. Because obviously when someone died, you had to get these clothes quickly so they would be ready-made. And what they would do is they would send a salesperson to your house because women couldn't leave the house when they were in mourning to fit you for your clothes. Special accoutrements for your servants, because servants would also go into mourning and wear black armbands. All of these things could be procured at these. The, probably the most famous was Jay's, which was on Regent Street in London. It opens in 1841. And I make this point because the Victorian era begins in 1837 when Victoria becomes queen. So you can see that after she becomes queen, these type of cultural things start to happen very quickly, even before Albert's death. She definitely brings a lot of these rules and regulations with her way of governing and just the overall traditions of the time period. Because if you look at mourning in the Regency period, which is sort of that early Jane Austen, you know, 1810 type era, some of the same practices exist, but most of them are exclusively Victorian. Funerals would be extremely elaborate you would have a special hired carriage and hearses. The horses would be black. They would wear black plumes. You would have professional mourners and weepers and mutes, men who did not speak, who were a sign of mourning, who wore special clothing and special black gloves. The more money you could spend on a funeral was a symbol of your status. What went along with this was also where you were buried. Now, England, like the majority of Europe, for a very long time, had just practiced burial in churchyards. Now, slight religious history, you will recall England was Catholic for much of its history until the Protestant Reformation comes to England under Henry VIII at which point the Anglican Church begins. 
if you have listened over the past couple of weeks, you probably remember that everyone was required to be a member of the Anglican Church. This caused a lot of problems. This is why the pilgrims left and became the subject of our episode a few weeks ago, along with many other groups. There, obviously, the Puritans caused a lot of problems. You may recall Oliver Cromwell. There's a lot of back and forth. By the 19th century, there are other religions that exist in England. These folks are generally known as dissenters. And you will see that basically on all of their information, even today. Anyone who is not Anglican, that is anything but Anglican, whether it is Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, you name it. They are always known as dissenters. What is interesting is that in the United States, when there is a movement away from churchyard cemeteries, it becomes entirely private. This doesn't really happen in England. It doesn't play out the same way. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First is I think that there is a state religion in terms of the Anglican Church. This is a tradition that still continues today. Secondly, I think it had to do with the fact that the massive growth and expansion of London required a collaboration between church and state in a lot of these circumstances. I don't live there, so I don't really have it. I I don't quite have my finger on the pulse of this, but I think that's a big part of it. So as I already said, the massive growth of the city of London, population doubles, so that by 1850, we have roughly 2.3 million people. That's a lot of bodies to bury. So there are two sets of legislation passed regarding burials. The first in 1832, the second in 1852. These parliamentary acts essentially seek to address the issue of overcrowding in London cemeteries. The 1852 Act is, the London Burials Act is a little bit more central, but starting in 1832, we do have a movement to push cemeteries outside the city. And this will lead to the establishment of what becomes known as the Magnificent Seven. Now, in case you were thinking that the English were just very clever and wanted to be the inspiration for a future Western, I hate to disappoint you, the term Magnificent Seven was never used when they were initially founded. This was a moniker that was later come up with by the architectural historian Hugh Meller in 1981 when he wrote A Guide to London Cemeteries. And of course, he takes the Magnificent Seven from the 1960 film of the same name. The Magnificent Seven were essentially a cemetery belt that encircled London. And these cemeteries were set up in the new surrounding boroughs around the city. They take on different names. Mostly they are known by the borough that they are in today. But the idea was that as the city of London expanded, you were going to be equally distant from each of these cemeteries. 
Now, I have done another episode on this. The first episode that I did on the London Necropolis and London Railroads, I talked a little bit about this. So if you want to go back and listen to that, I talked a little bit about Necropolis and the station there and how they were able to use trains to move bodies from London out to these suburban cemeteries. So if you're interested in that, it is definitely worth a listen. Mortuary Railroads, still one of my favorite topics. Really fascinating stuff. So these cemeteries... Starting in 1833, the first that is established is Kensal Green, which was also known as the General Cemetery of All Souls, which is founded in the borough of Kensington and Chelsea. West Norwood Cemetery, which was originally known as the South Metropolitan Cemetery, founded in 1837 in Lambeth. Highgate Cemetery, Which Highgate is complicated. This is arguably the most popular and best known of the Magnificent Seven. There are, in fact, two cemeteries at Highgate. The West Cemetery, which is the original cemetery founded in 1839. And the East Cemetery, which is opened later due to its popularity and expansion. And it is physically separate, founded in 1854. This exists kind of straddling the boroughs of Camden Harringley, Harringy, and Islington in North London. Abney Park Cemetery, which is found in the borough of Hackney in 1840. Abney Park is also generally known as the Nonconformist Cemetery. I already mentioned Nonconformist. Um, basically, this is the cemetery that was designed to serve those who were not Anglican. Brompton Cemetery, which is founded in the boroughs of Kensington and Chelsea. Um, not too far from Kensal Green, in 1840. Nunhead Cemetery, which is founded in the borough of Southwark in 1840. It was originally known as All Saints, not to be confused with All Souls, which is what Kensal Green was originally known as. And then the last is Tower Hamlets, Hamlets, which was originally known as Bow Cemetery in the borough of Tower Hamlets. Um, This is founded in 1841, And of all the cemeteries, this is the only one that is no longer active, which is pretty remarkable when you think about this. Basically, if you look at the same era in the United States, obviously, if you're a longtime listener, you know all about the rural cemetery movement. So... Mount Auburn Cemetery is founded in 1831, and this is what my primary argument is here. You know, there's a lot of talk, and if you read any description, it says, oh, well, you know, some very learned people went to France, and they looked at Père Lachaise, and they said, we should have something like that in London. Okay, yeah, sure. So Père Lachaise, at that point, had been around for 50 years. Mount Auburn was founded two years before. And if you read any of the accounts of Mount Auburn, the amount of visitors that came through to see that from all over the world, particularly Europe. Yeah, you can say that you were inspired by the French, which, hey, first time for everything in England. They don't like to admit that they stole anything from the French. You cannot tell me that Mount Auburn did not also influence the establishment of the Magnificent Seven. I'm calling total BS on that one. Because you can definitely see that there is a correlation. Structurally, the way it's established, all of these things. 
So these cemeteries are founded and they are very successful. And the other interesting thing is, is that they are not massive. So let's see. I have acreage on the majority of these. West Norwood is 40 acres. Um, Highgate is 37. Abney Park is 31. Um, Brompton is 40. Nunhen is, I believe, the largest at 52, and Tower Hamlets is 33. So these are not massive cemeteries when you compare them to U.S. cemeteries. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, almost all of these have catacombs, which are essentially underground burial vaults, and this allows for an extra layer of burials. So basically there are catacombs underneath, which are deep under the cemetery and have multiple layers. Um, I will definitely link up in social media this week. Um, the catacombs at Brompton, I do follow someone on Instagram who has been doing tours of the catacombs at Brompton. So I definitely will post that. That's one of the reasons. I think also just they are much more efficient. They don't have these massive palatial family lots that we do in rural cemeteries here in the United States. Tower Hamlets, which is the one that is closed, it was closed in 1966. Um, it has suffered a lot from neglect. It's definitely had a lot of issues, um, mainly due to the fact that it was bombed. So I'm going to focus on two of the Magnificent Seven just because I don't really have time to get into all of them because we're already running decent length. Um, but Tower Hamlets uh, gets bombed pretty badly. Um, it's very heavily used because Tower Hamlets is in the east end of London, which if you have seen any television show ever, you know, was incredibly overcrowded, very high death rates, um, lots of social issues there. And it was used very, very quickly. So that's one of the reasons that it fills up quickly. So by 1889, so at that point, you know, the cemetery is eh, roughly 50 years old, not even. They had almost a quarter of a million burials there. It remains open for another 80 years after that, pretty much. Um, but 60% of the burials were what were known as public graves. And that eventually goes up to 80%. So public graves were the property of the cemetery company and they were used to bury people whose families could not afford to buy a plot. So they were essentially communal graves where several bodies could be buried in the same grave. So these are not rural cemeteries. Aside from the fact that there is a company running the cemetery, eventually most of these will be taken over by the borough and they become public cemeteries. Aside from that, there's very little that we can say other than the fact that they're suburban. And they have some cool monuments, and they often have cemetery chapels. But they're not rural cemeteries, not by a long stretch of the imagination. It's a big problem. Then, during World War II, it takes a pretty severe hit from bombing. Um, it's bombed five times during the Battle of London, the chapel is eventually torn down, and over time it starts to deteriorate. It has since become a park, and so it has been rehabbed and kind of taken over. 
you wouldn't think that bomb and it's really interesting because I tried to find a lot of good sources on bombing and how bombings impacted cemeteries and you can only see like little snippets like it'll be a sentence in a news article which is kind of disappointing the other one that was hit pretty badly was West Norwood um so West Norwood is still open but it's mostly closed um so it's open for cremation and if you can prove that you have an existing family plot that still has space it had two chapels an original anglican chapel and then the dissenters chapel the dissenters chapel was bombed during world war ii it was rebuilt in 1956 and in 1960 the original anglican chapel was leveled now There was a couple of reasons for this. First of all, the dissenters chapel below the chapel was a catacomb, which was never popular with the dissenters. They didn't sell any of the space. So what they decided to do in 1915 was install a crematorium. Very cool. There's actually a hydraulic lift that lowers the bodies down. And then there's like a little underground railroad that moves the body to each of the crematoriums because eventually they expand it and expand it. Really neat. I wish I had seen a picture of it, but they do not allow any pictures to be posted online, sadly, Um, because I think that the mechanism would be super cool. And I saw that they just got a huge grant last year to do repairs on all of the now 100 plus year old equipment inside the crematorium, which is still active today. So they rebuild the dissenters chapel because the crematorium is there and still active. But the reason that they level the original Anglican chapel is that all of the damage from bombing has basically left the cemetery broke. And so starting in the 1960s, they are in real trouble. They are out of burial space. And as you know, that is the kiss of death for a cemetery. When you don't have graves to sell, you don't have money coming in. So what they decided to do is they adopt a policy called lawn conversion. And I read this great article. (laughs) Lawn conversion, which involved removing many of the monuments in order to make site maintenance easier and allow for gang mowing. (laughs) The British. I really can't get over their terms. Gang mowing. Um, I don't know what you're picturing, but I'm pretty sure it's actual gang mowing is a lot tamer. Um, But essentially, they're doing the same thing that Memorial Parks did here in the United States, except they are removing headstones to the tune of 10,000 headstones. And in 1974, laws passed that actually allows the council, in this case of Lambeth, to start removing graves that they had sold in perpetuity. So people who thought they had bought their graves permanently were now being moved. Oh boy, this sounds like some real 1950s era U.S. stuff. Britain was a little slow to catch on, but they've got it now. So they're reselling graves. They're doing lots of very shady stuff. They remove at least 10,000 monuments from the cemetery. Luckily, it, it does catch up with them. So they're attempt to make more burial space and make more money and simplify things uh, does backfire in them. So there are multiple lawsuits, most of them happening in the 1990s, where they do rule in favor of the people who do have rights. Um, 
they essentially say that they are going to form a committee, and this is where the church still kind of gets involved, so the, the local bishop is part of this, where they do make decisions one way or another about the rights of property owners, and that's why it's on a case-by-case basis if burial is still allowed there. But it was super interesting to me to see how little has been written about bombing and its effect on cemeteries. If you recall, again, from that railroad episode, that's also what happened to the Necropolis Railroad Station. It was destroyed during the Blitz. We don't tend to think about this. I mean, we know about natural disasters and their impacts on cemeteries and things like that. You don't think about aerial bombing and how badly it can damage cemeteries. But a lot of these Victorian cemeteries are still feeling the effects now, 80 years after the war, which I thought was really interesting and really compelling. So the Magnificent Seven really set a precedent and they changed the way that things are done. Obviously, they have a relatively short shelf life, though, because starting in the post-war era, we see a decline in the popularity of cemeteries overall and an extreme rise of cremation. So they are certainly no longer the same kind of beacons for society that they were during the Victorian era. Now, Queen Victoria herself dies January 22nd, 1901, bringing to a close the Victorian era. Ironically, when she died, it was the eve of the White Sails in England, And those of you who are young might not remember this, but that used to be a big thing. Like twice a year was the white sales when you could buy all your towels and all of your sheets and all of your whites at Sears or wherever you bought them, Sears or Kmart. And so it was the eve of the white sales. And so all of the newspaper accounts that you can read of her death talk about how everyone in town was dumping soot and Indian logwood and anything that they could find, shoe black, to dye every piece of white cloth black as the whole country went into mourning for her. An appropriate end to the Victorian era of death. As always, if you are enjoying the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts that they let you rate them. It does help me be much more searchable to people, help me be out there, um, help me feel even more guilty about when I miss an episode because you guys are wonderful. Follow along on social media if you are interested, if you want to learn more, if you want to see pretty pictures, all of that good stuff. I will try to be better about that. Hopefully life gets slightly less crazy in the next couple of weeks. I will be releasing an episode next week, even though it'll be Christmas Eve. Um, Still deciding. I have an episode I want to do, but I also don't know if it's a terrible one and if everyone will hate me. So we'll see. I'm still indecisive. I'm going to be traveling, but I'm going to try to record before I leave. So I will have it all ready for you in time for holiday happenings. But for now, have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb with a View.